I think either Nate or Anthony left their cell phone up here. Who wants it? Take 600 selfies on it. Dean, hey, dude, I come from youth ministry. You leave your cell phone laying around, you're going to come back to about 600 selfies and obnoxious pictures, and your whole data card is going to be filled. So I leave my phone all around. I don't even know where my phone is right now, but I can do that here in adult ministry, and I thank you for that. We have trust. But uh, welcome. Welcome to City Life. Uh, For those of you that are wondering why there's pumpkins out in front of the church and there's Christmas lights on the inside of the church, we're not crazy. We didn't start celebrating Christmas just because we finally hit fall. We're not jumping that far ahead. It's actually, this is a shout out. Uh, Outside, Faith sells pumpkins. Hey, grab some if you want some. There's an envelope on the door. Slide the money in there. Go get some pumpkins. Whatever. Let's support them. But uh. The Christmas lights is a shout out because we're in a series called Stranger Things based on the Netflix series Stranger Things. And, and that whole show is kind of like this coming of age story as, as these friends, one of their friends is, she just disappears, falls off. And as they begin to search and as the, the mom begins to search and as an officer begins to search, they begin all these encounters with the supernatural. And we see how popular this show has become. It's going to become Netflix's most popular show of all time in any given amount of time. That's a big deal because Netflix is a big deal. And we just see our culture's hunger for something more, the unseen, the supernatural. And and last week we talked about the supernatural and and how we see that throughout the Bible. And if you take the supernatural out of Christianity, you you take away Christianity. But you can podcast that to hear all that. And, And like we talked about Last week, this isn't an endorsement of the series. We're certainly not telling you, hey, go home, watch it with all your kids, like just grab some popcorn. No, we're not endorsing the series. There's not going to be a viewing party after service where we just binge watch the whole thing. But uh, speaking of parties, what are, y- y'all looked up like, oh, there's a party? No. What are some of your favorite events, parties to go to annually, like I'm talking like Super Bowl viewing or something random, like a a bar mitzvah. I don't even know. What are some of your favorite events, parties to go to? Thanksgiving. What was that? Pumpkin party. He's got one. That's a shameless plug. He's going to be hosting one. What do y'all call it? Pumpkin and chilling. All right, cool. Y'all need a better name. I'll work on that for you. What's that? Fourth of July? Yeah. What else? Your birthday. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> that it graduations anything like that no super bowl what's that fantasy draft sorry we draft yeah it happens but it's funny because i was going through my bible plan this week and it led me through ecclesiastes you get in ecclesiastes and you get to chapter 7 verse 2 and this is what the author says He says, it's better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies, and the living should take this to heart. Now, I bet this verse isn't on most people's lists of, like, most memorized verses. This isn't the verse you're running to in the morning when you're looking for, like, this this Jesus inspiration or the Jesus jump off. This verse isn't the one you're looking for. I'd rather read about Jesus turning water into wine at the the wedding party or, 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 or his birth, and we can celebrate his birth. Like, if I'm honest, I would much rather spend my time at a birthday party celebrating somebody than at a funeral remembering somebody. Am I alone on that? Didn't think so. But, you know, as you get older, my age and, and older, eventually, especially in our culture, it gets to the point where, like, it would be better if everybody just forgot 
that I just got a year older. We don't have to celebrate my birthday. Let's just pretend I'm still like 28, right? Let's just, let's just ignore the birthday and get on with life. Because in our culture and in our day and age a lot, we, we try to avoid all signs of aging. We'll, we'll dye our hair. We'll pluck hairs. <laughs> we will get Botox, plastic surgery, just anything to avoid the appearance of aging. And it's largely because we, we live in a day and age that does its best to avoid the thought of death. And if you look at our culture, it used, it used to be unavoidable. You know, but no longer do families prepare their own family members for burial. We got we got funeral homes to do that for us. We, we go to ICUs when, when people are suffering and dying. And, and when somebody does die, we like to use terms like they, they passed away because we like to gloss over the deeper reality. But, but really the heartfelt and really good impulse for us as humans is we want to make death pleasant for those that have suffered loss. But Ecclesiastes, it makes this point about funerals because at funerals, we're forced to stand vulnerable and naked before reality. We try not to think about normally. We try not to look upon it. But, you know, if you watched Stranger Things, the mom is forced to face this reality that her son has disappeared. He's gone. Eventually, she has to to hold his funeral. And then you see the, the friends, they're struggling with this idea, is there hope? For, for what's lost. And the mother, due to, get this, strange things she experiences, right, she begins to believe that, well, my son, he's not completely gone. He's out there somewhere. And she begins to look crazy. Straight up, the second episode, I think, is named The Weirdo on Maple Street. People begin to look at her like she's a little weird because she's convinced that he, he may, you may think he's dead, but he's alive somewhere. Again, is there hope? And we relate to this struggle. We see ourselves in it because every Age struggles with the finality of the grave. Every age struggles with the incomprehensibility of death. And often we think, well, is, is, is the afterlife, is it, is it wishful thinking? Is hanging our hopes on life after death, is it simply illogical and strange? You know, I shared last week the synopsis of this short story. It's a short story about a mother who has a blind son. And she doesn't want him to know he's blind. So she forbids anyone around him to use words that have to deal with color or that have to do with light or that have to do with any of the sense that he doesn't have. She just wants him to think no better of his life. And she does this successfully until one day a a, a girl jumps over the fence and begins to introduce herself and use all these forbidden words that deal with sight. And his reality is just shattered. What he thought was real, he realizes there's something he hadn't even realized that existed. And we talked last week, again, in Stranger Things, the the girl with the telekinetic power comes through that fence. And we talked about the supernatural and how Jesus, he himself, comes over the proverbial fence. And he shatters reality for us. Because, you know, we see life as beginning at birth, which we can't remember. If you can remember your birth... Congrats, I guess. Like, we don't remember. We see life as beginning at birth and ending at death, which we can't imagine. But Jesus spoke of his role before birth and after death and the years on earth as a time of transition. And that perspective changes everything. You know, you talk about blindness. Maybe you've heard of this woman, Helen Keller, right, who lived blind and deaf. And one thing she said in her life is this here, that for three things I thank God every day of my life. Thanks that he has vouchsafed me knowledge of his works, 
Deep thanks that he has set in my darkness the lamp of faith. Deep, deepest thanks that I have another life to look forward to. A life joyous with light and flowers and heavenly song. She was awakened to this reality that's beyond this life. And because of that, she had hope. And the thought I want to look at tonight, and I want to look at the story of Lazarus, is that Christ's victory over death, it didn't remove death from the equation, but it added life eternal to the equation, both in our tomorrows, but also it affects our todays. He didn't remove death from the equation, but he added eternal life. And not just eternal life at the end of our life, but eternal life that we can experience today. We're going to look at that, and we're going to look at the story of Lazarus. So if you got a Bible, you can pull it out and turn to John 11. If you got the U version app, you can swipe to John 11. And if you don't have either of those, there's Bibles in the pews. It's one of the blessings of being here at Faith Lutheran. But as you turn there, just to give you guys a synopsis, the, the shadow of death is over the entire chapter in John 11. Because at the beginning, you see the disciples, as Jesus is about to go visit Lazarus, they're like, hey, we just fled from there because they were going to stone you there. And then after Jesus goes there and he deals with Lazarus, and spoiler, he raises him from the grave, right? We'll get there. We'll get to that. After that, the religious leaders, they basically put a hit out on him. Like, we want Jesus dead. And can we, while y'all just turning there, just let's reflect on the irony of that, that Jesus proves that he has power even over death. And as a response to this, the religious leaders are like, oh, I want him dead. Good luck, right? But let's turn to John chapter 11. I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read through 15 on the screen. We're going to have bits and pieces from John 11, verses 4 through 15. But that's why I had you turn you there, because you can read with me. It says in verse 1, a man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus's sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. Then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. And the disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he will soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, because the disciples again are dense. He said, look, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now, you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. You know, we see in this passage that death doesn't have the final word. You ever, you ever know somebody with, like, last word syndrome where they just got to get the last word in? Maybe when you were a little kid, it was the, the kid that quoted Pee Wee Herman, I know you are, but what am I? I know you are, but what am I? I know you are, but what am I? And you just, you just give up after a while. Or maybe it's, it's, it's the coworker or the person sitting next to you, don't look at them. Who, you know, like, you think the conversation is over, and, you know, as you're walking out of the room, Drop another word. And you're like, wait, what? I thought this conversation was over. They want the final word. They want the last word. But death here is robbed of the final word. 
And if you look at Jesus' first words in this passage, he says, hey, Lazarus' sickness won't end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God. And it's so easy to read the Bible backwards and, and know how it's going to end. But you see Jesus say, it's not going to end in death. And yet he dies. And it looks like Jesus lets him die. But then Jesus says, he's asleep. Because death doesn't have the same finality to Jesus as it did to others. And again, it's so easy to read the Bible backwards. But imagine being Mary and Martha, right? Imagine trying to nurse your brother from death while waiting for Jesus. There's no electricity. There's no cell phone signal in Judea. So they can't just call him and say, hey, Jesus, come ASAP. Like he's dying. And if you don't come, he's going to die. And Jesus doesn't show up in time. And they watch their brother struggle. They watch him endure pain. They watch him writhe and groan. They watch him struggle to breathe. They witness it. This isn't them sitting in some intensive care unit. No, they witness their brother pass away. So raw reality for them. And then we get to verses 20 through 26. Martha comes out from the house, and when Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house, and, and Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Since Jesus told her, hey, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. But Jesus told her, hey, I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? You know, this three-day period between Lazarus' death and Jesus' coming, it must have felt like an eternity for Mary and Martha. But you know, God's divine timing doesn't always match what we would have scripted. And you know, we can ask questions like Martha did. Like, God, if you're for me and not against me, how could you let this happen? You know, God, if you love me, how could you make me go through what I just went through? If you're good and you love me, where were you? And that's why Martha asked Jesus this question. If you would have come sooner, when we called, he'd still be alive. And again, these four days, it's significant in that culture because there was a well-known Jewish belief echoed in first century writings that the soul of a dead person remained in the vicinity of the body, quote-unquote, hoping to reenter it for three days. This was the superstitious belief in their culture. But once decomposition settled in, the soul departed. So the four-day period shows that Lazarus' return to life, it wasn't some resuscitation. What was it? Was it Miracle Max? He wasn't going to come around and, and say, oh, he's, he's just partially dead, or what was it, almost dead, or mostly dead. He was all the way dead. There was no chocolate-covered pill that was going to bring him back to life. He needed Jesus, right? And you know what's funny? As we, you can turn to verse 40 through 44. It says in 39 that Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. The King James Version, she basically says, it will stinketh. Stinketh is in your Bible if you've got the King James Version. That's free. But to get to uh, verse 40 through 44, Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. 
And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. This was like Jesus's mic drop miracle, right? The mic drop is, if you're not familiar, is what people do when what they think was awesome. They just did something awesome, they'll just drop the mic and walk away. It's what it's basically the equivalent of athletes spiking the football after a touchdown, for, but for unathletic people like me that will never score a touchdown and be able to spike a football, people that speak for a living just drop the mic, walk away. I think Barack Obama did it once, right? You got the president of our nation doing a mic drop. Kanye made it famous. But anyways, this is all of that for Jesus combined because his public ministry for the most part is completed. He essentially goes underground until the Passover. He returns to the public square during the Passover, but only for public pleas, not for signs and wonders. This miracle with Lazarus was the pinnacle of his public ministry. It shows Jesus, man, I have power over death. But we also realize, we soon realize that Jesus didn't remove death from the equation. Death still sticks around. Matter of fact, Jesus experiences death. You look at Lazarus, Lazarus had to come back and die a second time. I wouldn't sign up for that right? But the Lazarus narrative is not to remove the grief that we feel over death and loss. You don't see Jesus rebuking them for their mourning. The sorrow and pain of the moment was real. It was poignant. It was powerful. And in some Christian circles, the power of the resurrection, it's preached in an effort to eliminate grief and and guilt people for mourning. But Mary and Martha were crying, and Jesus didn't correct them for it. He didn't correct them in the morning, like, hey, look at me. I'm here. Stop crying, right? I'm Jesus. Do you know who I am? No, he didn't do that. He cried with them, gave them permission. You know, it's right to describe death as terrible and painful. The wages of sin is death. And to say that and admit that, it doesn't compromise the quality of our faith. You know, C.S. Lewis once said that it's hard to have patience with people who say there is no death or death doesn't matter. There is death, and whatever is matters. How many of you guys have ever read A Grief Observed? Powerful book. You guys are on Twitter. Two random questions, I know. But on Twitter, during events, you got what's called live tweeting, where it's a stream of thought, like during the Oscars or doing an NFL game or during a conversation you're overhearing in Starbucks, whatever. It's people just sharing their thoughts as they're experiencing the event. And if you hashtag the Oscars, it's all these people uh, collaborating on Twitter, on your feed, quote unquote, live tweeting. So for C.S. Lewis, he's like live journaling after his wife's death. A grief observed is essentially a bunch of journal entries put together as he's grieving. And it's powerful. It shouldn't be the first C.S. Lewis book you read, but you should read it. Um, It'll make you want to be a better husband. It'll make you want to be a better wife. It'll make you want to be a better friend. It'll make you want to be a better person. Just don't read it on a Friday night because it'll bum you out. But you see C.S. Lewis wrestling with doubts and, and kicking at God with his words. There was so much doubt, so much pain, and so much hurt in this book that he wrote it under a, a different name because he didn't even know if he wanted all that affiliated with his name, C.S. Lewis. And he describes mourning as feeling drunk. He describes it like feeling concussed. Her absence, he says, was like the sky spread over everything. And he said that God felt absent like a door slammed shut. But after about 70 pages of pouring himself out on paper over months in real life, C.S. Lewis finally realized And he says, when I lay these questions before God, I get no answer, but rather a special sort of no answer. It's not the locked door. It's more like a silent, certainly not uncompassionate gaze, as though he shook his head, not in refusal, but waving the question like, peace, child, 
you don't understand. You know, confidence in suffering and death, it isn't a shallow optimism that denies the doubts, the questions, or the anguish of the experience. It looks it straight in the eye. The power is in the peace that comes from knowing Christ, even when we don't know why circumstances are happening. Right? Trusting in his power, trusting in his resurrection. Again, Jesus didn't remove death from the equation, but he proclaims for us like he did with Lazarus that our lives won't end in death. And again, think about it. Lazarus had to die again. <laughs> See, as Lewis in a grief observed says, they call Stephen the first martyr, but hadn't Lazarus the raw deal. Right? This man had to suffer and die a second time. He got to the gates of heaven and they're like, sorry, you got to go back. This is for my son's glory, but you got to go back to earth and go through all that dying stuff. You got to do it a second time, right? And C.S. Lewis realizes in a grief observed that to, to pray his wife back to earth to be with him, that that would ultimately be selfish. You know, the, a verse that always comes to mind as I bury my grandparents and I, I go through mourning or any time I'm in a mourning process is, is John chapter 17, verse 24, where Jesus says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. You know, Jesus died for each person I've ever loved and I've ever mourned, and he prayed, God, I want those people ultimately to be with me where I am. And you know, so often I'm praying, God, let them stay with me, right? Heal them, make them healthy and strong again. But when they pass on, that's Jesus' prayer being answered. They're with him now. And there's so much peace, there's so much solace in that. It brings peace. That's why Paul could say to the church in Thessalonica, don't mourn like those who have no hope. You know, C.S. Lewis says of that in a grief observed that what Paul says can comfort only those who love God better than the dead and the dead better than themselves. But again, imagine Lazarus on his second deathbed. No doubt the, the worry and maybe just the, the raw fear was there, but there was also faith, a confidence, knowing that his relationship with Jesus transcended death, that his love for God fueled faith and hope. You know, Paul also says to the church in Corinth that if our hope in Christ is only for this life, then we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. I'm here to tell you tonight, an afterlife isn't some stranger thing left for fantasy or fiction. Eternal life is a reality. It's an essential reality in the life of a believer. You know, I'm going to be preaching in Newport News next weekend, and there's a, a woman there named Lori Ruggiero. You can find her on Facebook. She's on Facebook. She's a great person. She uh, posted something months ago at this point about the, what is the band? What, should I stay or should I go? By The Clash. Now it was stuck in her head. And I saw all these people liking it and laughing about it and commenting on it. I was like, what's the, what's the big deal? Why is this, like this song was, came out before I was born. Its popularity apparently is doing pretty well, well still. And then finally I watched Stranger Things and it's in that series multiple times and the light bulb went off. And I'm like, oh, that's why. Right, But that song, Should I Stay or Should I Go, it's like Paul, he, he almost sings that line in Philippians 1. Only he's not chased by trouble, right? That song's saying he's pursuing the presence of God. You know, eternal life with God in heaven was such a reality for Paul that he yearned for it. Even as Steph was talking about in worship, sometimes I'm like, God, can I just go and be with you? You know, Paul says in Philippians 1.21, for me, for to me, living means living for Christ. And dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. You know, the reason Paul could wait for heaven forever to come after death is because he knew God whets our appetite. 
with the, his presence in this life as we serve and have a relationship with him. That's why we talk about it at this church so often, heaven now, heaven forever. There's an eternal life to come, but God offers us a depth of life today. Jesus didn't just want to add eternal life to the equation for after our death. It's a reality in our today. He waits for us every day we wake up, and it's our call, like Paul, to share it. You know, we see all, so often think of eternal life on the, the length continuum. Eternal life is something that just extends past the grave. But, you know, eternal life also has depth, infinite depth, it, it, that when we live here on earth in relationship with God, there is a depth and an enrichment and a fulfillment that comes in no other way because that eternity-sized void that's in your heart is filled with an eternal being. There's other things in life, experiences, people, things that might fill it for a time, but only God can fill it for eternity. But the question that I want to look at for the rest of our time tonight is, how is this resurrection life? How do I realize that in my life today? I mean, it's one thing to say that we're saved, but another to understand what it means to have eternal life in the present. How do I possess, how do I proclaim this life, especially without glossing over the reality of death? You know, I love the verse It's Psalm 90, verse 12, because it addresses both things, life and death. And the author says, teach us to realize the brevity of life, that we may grow in wisdom. I believe it's the NIV that says that we may walk in wisdom. What is this wisdom that we walk in in this life? I want to look at three realities of the afterlife, of eternal life, that inform our actions in this life, here and now, today, next week. This month, how it informs that. And the first is, if you're taking notes, coming judgment. Coming judgment. You know, some people would look at that Helen Keller quote, that powerful Helen Keller quote, where her hope is stirred for this this life after death. And again, people would look at this mother in in Stranger Things with this hope that she's going to see her son again. And some would chalk that hope up as wishful thinking. Right, that the hope of eternity is a coping mechanism for the pains of today. That religion offers hope for suckers and losers, but not the serious and the sophisticated. You know, it was Karl Marx that says religion, or said that religion is the opium of the people. Is it this hopeful coping mechanism? Or is believing that our actions will never be judged for the suckers and the losers? Believing that we're free to float whatever direction our flesh takes us and we'll never have to suffer any consequences or be judged for it. You know, one fundamental motivation for atheism is the fear of accountability and consequence before an almighty God. Many historians attribute the rise of atheism in the 18th and 19th century as the fruit of a godless world who long for a reality that fit their longings. But there's a a Polish poet, and I'm going to pretend I know how to pronounce his name. It looks like Czeslaw Mezlosz. He was a Polish poet. He won the Nobel Prize in 1980. After being intellectually bullied, politically silenced, get this, first by Nazi Germany and then by Stalin. Dude lived a life. And he said this in one of his writings. He said, religion, opium for the people. To those suffering pain, humiliation, illness, and serfdom, it promised a reward in afterlife. And now we are witnessing a transformation. A true opium of the people is a belief in nothingness after death. The huge solace of thinking that for our betrayals, greed, cowardice, murders, we're not going to be judged. The Marxist creed has now been inverted. The true opium of modernity is the belief that there is no God so that humans are free to do precisely 
what they please. He's saying, look, to deny judgment is the true cop-out. But you know, a reality, a helpful reality for those who suffered oppression is this man whose name I don't know how to pronounce did, Mr. Malosh. Everything crooked in this life will one day be made right. That God is a God of justice. He's holy and he's righteous. When events in our society, especially the shootings and riots even of this week, they leave me at a loss for words thinking, what is going on? How did we get here? Where are we going as a nation? I look at a verse like Amos. Amos where he says, let justice roll down like water, righteousness like a mighty stream. And you know what's powerful to me about that verse? That sounds like people are crying out to God. But that's God speaking through the prophet Amos. God is saying, man, let justice roll down like water. God has a heart for justice. And when it's missing, he grieves with us. He isn't numb or blind to it. When injustice hurts people, he hurts with them. He's near to the oppressed. The peace that the gospel brings is that everyone will be judged. We don't know all details. We don't see all things, but God does. One may fool justice in this short life, but not in eternity. God sees, God knows, God calls everyone to account. And for some people, that's scary, thinking judgment is coming. But when you live and you walk in wisdom, rooted in reverence, as Paul says, perfecting holiness, striving to do that, you can look forward to judgment with hope, with peace, knowing that you're covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. But you know, again, our peace isn't just for the distant future. The second thing I want to look at that we walk in that informs how we live today is our present hope. Not just coming hope, our present hope. Paul said, again, we read this before, that if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But you know what? There's a similar pity to be felt for those that hope for the life thereafter, but they've given up hope for today. That's why so often we quote here Psalm 27, 13, where where David says, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord here in the land of the living David was saying, hey, if we only hope for the next life and we don't expect God's goodness in this one, we're also to be pitied. The author of Hebrews, he describes our hope as an anchor. And sometimes I think we think that hope is anchored way into our deep and distant future. But Jesus wants to pull that hope into the present. He wants to grab our future hope and pull it into the present. Again, in this narrative of Lazarus, Martha says, hey, she had faith. She said he'll rise when everyone else rises at the last day. It was a common Jewish belief that, hey, they'll rise eventually. But Martha's hope was in the deep and distant future. Jesus says to her, hey, Lazarus is going to be raised now. He's dead. You're alive. But I'm what he needs, and I'm also what you need. You read that passage. He says, anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. That's for Lazarus. But then he goes on to say, everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. That's for Martha. Some of us have the perspective of Martha. I'm here, I'm worshiping, I'm plugged in because I know or I at least hope that one day I'll reap eternal life. One day I'll be raised from the grave just like Jesus was. Some of you may just be here because, you, you know, there might be an eternity. There might be a heaven and hell, and we just want that insurance policy that will be covered at the end of the day. But eternal life, it affects now. God wants to invade our present reality. And if he hasn't, you probably have an eternal problem. God wants to invade our present reality. Eternal life should affect now. And if God hasn't affected your life now, you might have an eternal problem. Because Jesus added eternal life into the equation, not just for the future, not just for after death. He added eternal life into the equation today. In this passage, he says, hey, I am 
the resurrection and the life. Not I will be the resurrection and the life. He says, I am the life. I'm here right now, and I'm available to you. And we step into eternal life as we know him and as we follow him daily. Jesus says in John 17, 3, that this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you've sent to earth. But again, you look at this passage. Mary and Martha, they had been through some agony. Lazarus went through agony and death. Yet Jesus revealed his glory to them in a way that I'd give anything to witness, right? Just to witness that measure of his glory and his power over death. But don't measure the love of God for you based on circumstance, based on health or wealth. If that's the case, then God hated Paul, most of the disciples and most of the apostles and most of the early church, right? If you demand that God love you the way the world shows love, you can miss his love altogether. Measure God's love for you by how much he reveals himself to you, how much he works in you and through you, through all circumstances. Come on, we have a present hope, no matter what our our circumstance looks like right now. We can get so confused sometimes and project whatever our circumstances look like, like onto the heart of God. But you know what? Our circumstances in life, there's peaks and valleys, there's ups and downs, but this is God's love for us. doesn't change, ever. Don't project your circumstances on God. We have a present hope no matter what. And then lastly, we have hope for a future glory. This affects how we live now because Paul says in Romans 8, 18, that what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed to us later. Again, yes, Jesus brought Lazarus back from the grave. But what about those other sisters, other mothers, other fathers that were mourning lost sons, daughters, and brothers? What about those miracles that seem to be missing? What about those that other people mourn for presently, here and now? You know, many see miracles, these stranger pictures of the supernatural as some kind of almost magic trick. But I've learned to see miracles as a sign and foreshadowing. Because you look at the miracles of Jesus, they didn't provide any sort of permanent solution for pain on the planet. Again, this past week has been a sobering reminder of that reality. But God is no more satisfied with this world than we are. And his miracles give a glimpse of what was meant to be and one day will be. That death, decay, destruction, the violence of this life, the violence of this week in our nation, they're interruptions to God's will. His will that was once present in Eden and will be reestablished in eternity. And miracles are glimpses of that eventual restoration. You know, the, the supernatural and sometimes downright strange events of Christmas, and you look at Easter and all the events in between in Jesus' life, those miracles are heralds of God's rescue plan for a broken planet. You know, perhaps Jesus, this viewed as a revolutionary, viewed as so dangerously strange that he was killed, maybe he was actually setting out the normal pattern for life on this planet as revealed by its designer and its creator. You know, that he appears strange and he got murdered for it may say more about us than it says about him. There was a German theologian, Jürgen Moltmann. I think I'm saying that better than the other name. It says, Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Come on, that's deep. That'll flip the way you think. We get to look forward to a future glory that those miracles point to. But, you know, I've been 
If I could have the worship team come up, actually. If I could have the worship team come up. I've been preparing for the men's retreat. Shameless plug. You haven't signed up to go? Do that. What Denise said, go. (laughs) You know, like passivity, passiveness has been crippling men and their families and the people they're called to lead since the garden when Adam stood there while Eve ate the apple, right? We're going to deal with that at the men's retreat. Don't let passiveness keep you from there, right? Sign up, go. It's going to be good. One reason because of all the people speaking. The other reason because it's loosely based on Gladiator, which is the greatest movie of all time. So as I was preparing for the men's retreat, I rewatched that this week. There's so many good nuggets in there, certified nuggets. There's so many good quotes. And one of them is, is towards the end of the movie where Maximus says, death smiles on us all. All that man can do is smile back. You know, we smile because of hope, because we know what waits for us. That's kind of corny because that's from a fictional movie. But hey, here's a real one. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived a legendary life resisting the Nazis before ultimately getting executed, he said this, death is the supreme festival on the road to freedom. That death is the supreme festival on the road to freedom. You know, I met a, a waitress at a restaurant I went to with Pastor Fred this week. She drove up and down daily the road we know as 64. <laughs> she moved from the Dallas area in Texas about a month ago. She got this job at this restaurant. She'd been driving through that tunnel for weeks now. And it's funny, we were talking to her, and she didn't realize that the tunnel went under the water, went through the water. We're talking to her, and she's like, wait, what? You said, wait, what? It goes under the water? Her mind, like just the, the moment you saw her mind blown, like this light bulb moment. She didn't realize the slope, like I'm going under boats, that there's this other element, water on the other side of these walls that she didn't even know about. But you know what? Tomorrow she's not gonna slam on her brakes as she gets to the tunnel. If you drive 64 and 664, I know somewhere in your top, like four pet peeves are the people that get to the tunnel. I was behind one the other day and they're not native here. They don't know what's happening. They're like, why am I going underwater? And they slam their brakes on. I've experienced it often. I still have my salvation. But she's not gonna slam her brakes on when she gets to the tunnel because she knows that there's another side. She knows that there's life and light at the other side of that tunnel. You know, man, we have the same perspective with death and the life eternal that's on the other side. Against Christ's victory over death, it didn't remove death from the equation. It didn't get rid of the tunnel, but it added eternal life, not just to our tomorrows, but to our todays. So if we could stand, we're going to go back into worship. We're going to sing here waiting again. But I want us to ask this question. Ask yourself. So often it's easy to hear sermons and project it on other people. Yeah, they need to hear this. No, ask yourself the question. Are you walking in the fullness of the life Jesus promises? The depth of eternal life that he's promised. Because if we're honest, we all at one time or another, we've been Lazarus. We might picture ourselves as Martha or Mary, but we've all at one point or another been Lazarus, dead in sin. You know, the stone was rolled away from Jesus' tomb at Easter so that spiritually the stone could be rolled away for us, those dead in sin, and we could walk out into the life that Jesus promises. But you know, some of us, we're still in the tomb, still in our grave clothes. We become tomb tenants. Can you imagine if, if Jesus raised Lazarus, says, hey, Lazarus, come out. 
I was like, hey, cool, you raised me from the dead, but you know what, I'm good. I'm gonna stay in here. I like the climate in here, it's kind of damp, but it's cool. I'm gonna stay back here in this tomb and just hang out. But we've got believers who stumble and don't follow because they're still stumbling in their grave clothes. They're still stumbling in the old habits, old ways of thinking. Jesus has been saying, hey, come to me, and maybe we're, we've been passive in our following of him. That's why in Ephesians 5.14 it says, wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You know, maybe we walk in wisdom. Again, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, I love it. He says, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Knowing that, hey, judgment will one day come. But as I live a life like that, I can look forward to it with joy that I'm going to meet Jesus who's judged, but he's also my Savior. I'm covered in his blood. But may we also walk in hope knowing that Jesus, he conquered sin and death. That grace and that eternal life, it affects us today. God, even here, even now, we know that the work you did on the cross, the work you did at the grave, overcoming death, Lord God, that it affects us here, it affects us now. We all walked in with something, God, something, as it talks in Hebrew, something that entangles, something that hinders, whether it's sin or just something that's holding us back from praying like we need to, reading the word like we need to, being generous like we need to, having relationships and accountability like we need to. God, show us where there's still depth to be discovered in the eternal life that you want to give us. Help us not to live shallow lives as we wait for eternity to come after death, but help us to explore those depths of the life you promised to us, outlined in your word, God, experienced as we pursue you in prayer and in worship, God, and we pursue you even now. God, we praise you, we worship you, Jesus, for your blood that covers us. In Jesus' name, come on, let's sing, let's praise, and let's worship.